0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 17th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll discuss Vontae Davis's pretty much unprecedented mid-game retirement, Le'Veon Bell's ongoing holdout, and the limits of player solidarity in the NFL. Alex Hutchinson of Outside Magazine will also join us to talk about how Kenya's Elliot Kipchoge managed to destroy the world record in the marathon. And Aaron Gordon will be here to assess the athletics effort to become a world-dominating, audience-pleasing sports media behemoth. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan.
1: Hey, Josh. I like how you said hang up and listen in the intro. That was a new twist.
0: You like that? You think I should adopt that new cadence? Sure. Hang up and listen. Um, Do you want to start us off by talking about the NFL? Would that be a
1: thing that I could entice you to do? I could do that. All right, go for it. Buffalo Bills defensive back Vontae Davis played the first half of the team's game on Sunday against the Los Angeles Chargers. And then at halftime, the 10-year veteran and former pro bowler told his coaches he couldn't play anymore, took off his uniform, and left the stadium. In the understatement part of a statement that he released later, Davis said, this isn't how I pictured retiring (laughs) from the NFL. Josh, Davis's unusual retirement has provoked a Hurricane Florence of takes, almost all of which have been harshly critical of the player, except when they're making fun of the terrible Buffalo Bills. Bill safety Raphael Bush said, I did lose a little respect for him just as a man. Linebacker Lorenzo Alexander said, it's just completely disrespectful to his teammates. I just went to the Buffalo News' website. The main headline is in all caps and big type, Bills are better off without Vontae Davis. My take is that Vontae Davis is better off without the Bills and that there are more NFL players than you might imagine who picture retiring from the league exactly the way Davis did, saying, fuck it and quitting on the spot.
0: But wait, you said this wasn't uh, how I pictured retiring from the NFL is –
1: Uh, uh, He may not have pictured it before, but when it came time, he was like. The picture was clear. The picture was clear. My second take, the reactions say less about Davis than they do about the power that the NFL exerts, not just over fans and talking heads, but over other players, at least the ones who have been quoted here about Davis, who can't seem to fathom why a teammate might just up and leave. Josh, what are your quick takes? What do you want to Start talking. Well, just as a sports columnist in
0: Buffalo, I would be incredibly grateful for this happening. It seems like a really, really easy uh, take to produce on on deadline on a Sunday. So, thank you to Vante from the Buffalo sports media. Um, just before I opine, um, just wanted to give a little bit of more um, uh, detail from Vante Davis's letter. He, and he, I totally want
1: to talk about Vontae Davis's letter because I think he it's said, really revealing about it, the state of mind of an NFL player.
0: He said it was his 10th season. He'd been doing what his body had been programmed to do, get ready to play on game day. He mentioned um, that he's endured multiple surgeries and played through many different injuries throughout his career, and he had been suffering through another injury um, the last few weeks. And it seemed like what was motivating this was Um, concerns for his health or the feeling that, um, you know, I've assessed my body, I've assessed my ability to do this. In the first half, it became incredibly clear to me that I'm not healthy enough to be on the field, um, that I'm a danger to myself and others by being on this field. And so I am now exiting the field. That seemed to me uh, what he was trying to say. I would say this. I I feel like I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the teammates than you are. It is objectively a weird thing to do. Absolutely. To quit on the team in the middle of a game, no matter totally. no matter how we feel about the NFL and how dehumanizing it is and and all of the negative things we've said on the podcast for years and years. Bracketing all that, it's weird. Like I think you should aspire as a player not to do that and to say that this is like some kind of noble act where we should, you know, respect and honor the fact that he did this. It feels like it's going a little bit too far. I'm not going to like roast the guy or say that he's like not a man, which is just ridiculous. But to say that like other players should like aspire to do this and like good for Vontae Davis for just like, you know, he wasn't feeling it. So he's just going to
1: leave. It's like, no, you probably shouldn't do that. That's right. not that's bad. Which, which Which is why I think that there's something that we don't know here. That statement was incredibly well composed. That statement was reflective of the way that a lot of NFL players feel that they have sacrifices is the word that players used and that Davis used in his statement that he felt like he couldn't sacrifice anymore. Um, look, Vontae Davis could have told the coaches, I can't go, and taken off his shoulder pads and stood on the sidelines for the second half, and then the team would have announced after the game that he is retiring and that he was given his release.
0: And that happens all the time where guys, the time. guys are hurt and right. they can't go in the second half. Which is
1: why I think that we just don't know. This is unusual behavior. This is drastic behavior. And for the, there, must be, there could be something else going on with Vontae Davis that would lead him to do this. He knew that he would be drawing the instant ire of his teammates, of fans, of management, of the league, of the media – Um, So something feels weird here.
0: Well, there's the disconnect between, as you said, the statement, which is, you know, very seemingly well thought out and and smart in terms of how he contextualizes this event in terms of his career and the seemingly um, extremely rash and not well thought out and alienating decision to just, as you said, like you could do the exact same thing. And just like not say I'm retiring and like put on your street clothes and leave the stadium and have the exact same effect. It's just it is weird. I think uh, we should lean in to the weirdness here. But then you have like somebody like Arian Foster, who has this reputation, rightly so, as being somebody who um, was very vocal during his career about um, the need for players to um Treat themselves better than the NFL treats them, and to be very outspoken about the fact that um, you know the NFL is a meat grinder and that the league doesn't care about players. And he, on his Twitter account, is celebrating Fonte Davis and saying that football culture has brainwashed people and players, that your health as a human being a pr- prioritized over sport is somehow disloyal. And, you know, maybe if we're just talking about this as like a marketing thing, it's like, oh, the the problem with LeBron's decision was just that he did it on TV and it wasn't actually the d- decision that was made. And it's the same thing here. The problem is like the way that Vontae Davis is marketing this, like maybe it's just like splitting differences and, and who really cares in the end. But I do think it's like brought up this interesting disconnect between two sides of this NFL divide. And it's been useful that way in terms of people who see it as like players really need to look out for themselves because nobody's looking out for them. And this is just the most extreme case of that. And like, as this edge case, we should just like celebrate it because like, here's a guy who's like, so self-actualized that he like really doesn't give a fuck. Um, And then on the other side, they're like, actually there are, even in this league that's so dehumanizing, there are like ways to go about this. And you did kind of screw over your teammates a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, how much did you screw over your teammates? You screwed over yourself more. I mean, okay. The bills were down to, you know, three DBs or safeties. And it did put some burden on, on the players that were still on the field. On Raphael Bush. On Raphael Bush. Um, But I, I think the, the larger reality is what we do need to focus on here. I do think this guy snapped. And I do think that NFL players are conditioned to believe that their obligation is to the team and to the organization and to the contract that they have signed as opposed to themselves. The NFL will break your contract in a second. Bill Belichick will cut your ass in the middle of practice. Loyalty is not a two-way street in the NFL, and I think it's really important to not forget that. Um, When I spent my summer in the Broncos' locker room, only the smartest and the most self-aware players, like Arian Foster, who was not on the Broncos then, uh, are willing to call out bullshit. Um, There were a bunch of guys I saw grapple with the exact same kinds of emotions that Vontae Davis expressed in his statement – Um, The epitome was this guy, this linebacker named Ian Gold, um, and he saw the NFL's hierarchical, controlling M.O. for what it was. He was cynical. He was angry. He was clear-eyed. He knew the NFL wanted to make everything about the league and the team, so he chose to make it about himself. Other players viewed him as selfish for doing that.
0: There is an I in
1: Ian. (laughs) But from his perspective, it was fuck these people. I don't need to be anybody's friend. I don't need to be anybody's buddy. I am here to work and get a paycheck. And when I am done, I am fucking done. And I will decide when it I. It
0: sounded like he was on Survivor. Like sincerely, like I'm not here to make friends. Uh, I'm I'm here to win the game. The game being uh, getting getting kind of paid. Is that like that was his goal? Just to extract as much from the league and the team as he could while he could? Well,
1: no, I don't think it was cynical in that way. Um, It was that he loved competing. He loved playing the sport, but everything about it and the way he had been treated by other organizations and by the Broncos, he viewed as just part of the game of controlling players.
0: Two quick things before we move on to Le'Veon Bell about Vontae Davis. I don't remember why I started watching this. It's probably just like the YouTube algorithm fed it to me, but there was like a scene in Hard Knocks that like one of the years yeah. um, when it was the dolphins and he got traded on TV. Like it was, um, Well, that's respectful for our public consumption and entertainment. And you heard the GM Jeff Ireland. I mean, it wasn't, I don't want to go too far and say that Ireland was lecturing him. It actually seemed like Ireland was trying to help him out and say, like the reason that we're trading you is that you need to be more consistent. It wasn't like that mean spirited, but just the nature of the fact that his, being dumped by this team and sent to the Colts was like a made into entertainment kind of shows the way that, and this isn't an, at all unusual. It wasn't like Vontae Davis in the context of the NFL was like mistreated. They're like that's totally normal. And like another team actually wanted him. So you could even spin it as a positive, but it's just like weird that like this is the way that this guy's been treated in his career. He also got released by the Colts last year when he said publicly, um, that the team hadn't uh, handled his groin injury very well. Um, and so this is a guy who, you know, a team cut him for, I don't know if there's a direct link, but cut com- him after he complained publicly he was traded on television. Um, the NFL hasn't necessarily behaved uh, super honorably
1: with regards to his employment status either. You know, we've made a lot of assumptions about what NFL players might think, and I made some observations based on my experience, limited though it might be, inside an NFL locker room. Um, Before the show, I texted our friend Nate Jackson, formerly of the Denver Broncos, author of Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man, uh, to ask him what he thought of Ante Davis's abrupt retirement. Nate just wrote me back was going to say it was the most level-headed resignation in the history of sports because of all the crap you go through to play in the NFL, the game is the reward, the shit you live for. If even that is no longer worth it and you are able to notice it while it happens, then praise be to Jesus, it's time to move on. Teammates are secretly jealous as all of them have the sneaking suspicion that they are being fleeced. Whenever a teammate of mine let his team down through some transgression, I never really cared much. It was my own job that mattered to me.
0: Le'Veon Bell, let's talk about that. Um, Le'Veon Bell is um, statistically one of the best, if not the best, running backs in the NFL – Um, has played for the Pittsburgh Steelers his whole career. For the last two seasons, the team has used its franchise tag on him, which is a mechanism that was collectively bargained that allows a team to retain the rights to one player on its roster without allowing that player to pursue free agency. And they can lock him in to a high-paying deal, but one that's only for a single year. So it doesn't provide you any long-term security at all. And so, Bell, who wants that long term security, um, he signed the franchise tag last year, played under it. When he got tagged again this year, he refused and he sat out the first two games. And the thing that I found really interesting about this is that um, his teammates have called him out and have not, um, you know, agreed with him, have not sided with him. And it actually surprised me. Like when somebody like Todd Gurley or Odell Beckham, gets paid or Aaron Donald gets paid. You hear the entire league celebrate if you're on social media. People want um, other players to get paid because it sets the market um, so that you know, maybe they can benefit from it down the line. But I also think there's something sincere in that like we're all in this together. We're all like in it against the man and you know we're um, celebrating when somebody like Todd Gurley gets this huge deal. But for Bell, it's like his teammates have said, You know, he's only in it for himself. Um, uh, Here's a
1: guy who doesn't give a damn, I guess, so we'll just treat it as such. I just hate it came to this. That's Ramon Foster.
0: Marquise Pouncey, we're the Steelers and we're going to play as the Steelers. If you don't want to be here, it is what it is. Hold out for 10 weeks. Um, Even Ben
1: Roethlisberger, one player doesn't make or break the team. Were you surprised? I was surprised. Um, I was surprised. And then I also, you realize that, look, NFL locker rooms are big. And there are a lot of people in there. And no, everybody doesn't share the same sort of all-for-one cynical approach toward the way management treats players. That's one thing to think it; Another
0: thing to say it out loud, um, it, usually a quote like this would be, an anonymous player says this. These guys are putting, he, he
1: putting been, their name to it. ESPN did quote an anonymous player saying, he fucked us. So, <laughs> That's yeah. a good quote. That's a good quote. <laughs> good yeah. quote, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think that given the size of an NFL locker room, you can find multiple players who are going to adopt probably not consciously NFL management's line Um, because there are. There really are people in those locker rooms who feel like we are warriors, we are here to be together, and any sign of disloyalty is a reason to cut you loose from the pack.
0: Well, objectively, it is hurting the team that he's not sure. there. It's just a question of who's to blame for the fact that he's not there, right? Well, yeah,
1: and whether you know Le'Veon Bell's decision isn't for the collective good of NFL players who are in the league now and who are going to be in the league down the road.
0: Right. I can understand feeling like you're in the league for a limited time. This is hurting the team's chance to win this season. I can imagine that being frustrating. Um, again. It's obvious to look at Bell and say this is his fault that he's not here. He certainly could be there if he was willing to play on the tag and hurt um, his, you know, potential to you know have a long term career with guaranteed money. He could certainly make that.
1: know Bell to could do that. like tear his ACL the first play from scrimmage after he comes back playing under the tag, and that will be the end of his career. There will be no more guaranteed money.
0: But. Again, it's like similar to Kaepernick, right? It's like the reason that people are mad at Bell is that this isn't something that people typically do. do. right? It's It's not necessarily that he's wrong for doing it. Maybe more players should do it. It's that it's not standard. And in terms of no matter how you feel about the NFL, it's objectively true that in terms of what's standard for a player in his position to do he's not doing it. And so the expectation of his teammates would be, based on what's par for the course, is that he would be there. And right.
1: he's defying those expectations. Right. He, he is doing something that's out of the norm. I mean, what's really shocking is that Ramon Foster and Marquise Pouncey are union reps for the Steelers. I mean, that to me is a stunning fact.
0: Yeah, that is it is really is shocking. Weird.
1: It's, it's I weird. Mean, th- so on the one hand, you are you know, being – educated by your union leaders that we do need to be more solid as a group to fight against management because, look, let's admit it, our last collective bargaining agreement was not favorable to the players. And then at the same time, there's the overwhelming cultural message that NFL ownership and management and the media project on the players about their need for loyalty and commitment to the organization as a whole.
0: The thing that makes this really difficult is that just from a purely economic standpoint, it's totally rational what the Steelers are doing. Like to pay to pay a running back like Bell, who's taken as many hits as he's taken um, over you know, the first four mm-hmm. years of his career, it really doesn't make sense. And Gurley getting the Todd big Gurley deal the Rams, that he did. Yeah. Um, is really the exception, and it's been proved time and again in the NFL um, that you don't need a high-paid star running back to win a Super Bowl. And
1: And in fact, the Steelers plugged in this guy James Conner, and he's done great.
0: Yeah, they're winless in their first two games. They're 0-1-1, but that's certainly not James Conner's fault. They tied the Browns, I mean. That is James Conner's fault, even though he ran for more than 100 yards in that game. Um, It's everyone's fault for for tying the Browns. But – the one of the bigger picture stories here is that running back is still a star position and that the perception, Bell's perception of his value kind of dates to a previous era of the NFL. And like, he's a really good player. He's a good receiver out of the backfield as well. It's not like he's not worth anything, um, but it just does seem like the, with, The way that the salary cap math works and that the pie works is that if the Steelers want to allocate their money in a way that um, gives them the best chance to win, giving Le'Veon Bell the amount that he wants is just not probably going to work for them. And so I don't really see there being a good resolution here.
1: Well, the better resolution is for the collective bargaining agreement that is negotiated by the players union with management to – anticipate this kind of of situation Um, you know markets come and go the value of different position players is going to fluctuate over time Um, but the bottom line is that players in the NFL don't have much leverage and Le'Veon Bell does have some leverage right now and he is choosing to exercise that holding out to the leverage he's also preserving his health he could come back right. and year. That's the
0: really smart thing is that he's preserving his health.
1: You know, he could come back next year healthier. He could be extending his career by playing less in his mid to late 20s. And, you know, maybe that's a solution. Maybe running back should take two years off. Gap year. They should take a gap year. Maybe travel. Woof. Go to Florence.
0: see uh, See some art. Before we get to our segment on the marathon world record – Want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk uh, about a couple other NFL stories that we did not get to in our first segment. We'll talk about Aaron Rodgers coming back from injury uh, in weeks one and week two. We'll talk about Patrick Mahomes, the Kansas City quarterback. Might get into kicking and scorigami as well, um, which I'm sure would please, Stefan. Join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at Slate.com slash hangup plus. terms apply.
1: On Sunday, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya broke the record for running 26 miles and 385 yards, and not by a little. Kipchoge finished the Berlin Marathon a minute and 18 seconds faster than fellow Kenyan Dennis Kimetto did in 2014, the last time someone shaved more than a minute from the marathon record. Was 1969. The website Let's Run compared Kipchoge's performance to Will Chamberlain's 100-point game and Usain Bolt's 9.58 100 meters. I lack words to describe this day, Kipchoge said afterward. That job now falls to Alex Hutchinson. He's a columnist for Outside Magazine and the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, welcome back to the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me back, Stefan.
1: You called it before this race. You wrote in the New York Times, I think he's going to run 201 something. Sure, you wrote that before the 2017 Berlin Marathon, but small detail, Kipchoge finished in two hours, one minute and 39 seconds. It takes a lot to produce any marathon record. What forces conspired for Eliud Kipchoge to do it in Berlin?
2: Yeah, I mean, there the, there was the man, and there was the situation. Uh, you know, the weather had to be perfect. The course in Berlin is famously fast. It's where the last several uh, marathon records have been set because it's so flat and not too many sharp curves. But Kipchoge is not—he uh, is not an unknown quantity. He's the Olympic, the reigning Olympic champion for the marathon. He's been at the top of the sport since two thousand and three. When as an 18-year-old, he, he very surprisingly came out of nowhere and won a world championships on the, on the track in over 5,000 meters. He's won all but one of the marathons that he's he's running. This was his 10th marathon victory in 11 tries, which is unprecedented because, you know, a marathon races are really like heavyweight bouts. They take a lot out of you. You can only do a few a year, and most people have a very brief window at the top. So Kipchoge was the man, and he had the day, and it all came together. Just to get
0: into the nitty-gritty a little bit, he ran 61 minutes and six seconds in the first half, and then he ran a negative split where he um, split the second half of the race in 60 minutes and 33 seconds. Also, he had a bunch of pace setters, as is common um, in events like this when there's a possibility for a world record, and the pacemakers couldn't keep pace with him. Um, They they dropped out most of... um, most of them, I think there were three, two of them dropped out way earlier than had been expected. So I was just curious, first of all, about the, the split. Um, does that indicate that he ran a smart race? Um, does it indicate that maybe he could have even gone a little bit faster um, in the first half? Then also with the pacemakers, does the difficulty there suggest that there is still a little bit of meat left on the bone? Like if the people that were supposed to be in front of him and, you know, helping him had been a little bit better than maybe he could have gone still faster.
2: Yeah. So, so as far as the pace goes, he, he had requested, he wanted the pacemakers to go 61 minutes for the first half and people, a lot of bystanders and, you know, including myself, I sort of thought, well, that's, that's awfully ambitious given that the world record is just under 203. Why not go out right at world record pace? And if if you're as great as you think you are, you'll be able to pick it up in the second half. But why risk a huge blow up by going so fast, 61 minutes? 61 minutes for the first half of a
0: marathon is actually the record, right?
2: And it was like going downhill. Uh, well, that's the fastest anyone has gone out in in a in a marathon, and and the world record for the marathon is just 50, you know, fifty eight minutes. So, uh, and you know, one of the other pieces stats that's been bouncing around is only four Americans have ever run faster than he than Kipchoge ran his for for a half marathon than he ran for a second half marathon. So it's it's an exceptionally hard and difficult pace to set. People thought it was maybe a little bit too ambitious, and instead, as you said, he he got faster in the second half. Now. So it, with hindsight, can we say, well, he should have gone out even faster for the first <laughs> half? Uh, I, I think the you know probably the the wisest thing to say is you know he should not have changed anything. This was a perfect race. <laughs> um, and and there's there's actually a a longstanding uh, phys, you know physiological and maybe also philosophical debate about what the best way to run a marathon is. If if you read Aesop's fables, you, you sort of think even pace is the way to go. So you know just set exactly how fast you're going to go. That's how fast you should run for the whole race. Um, some people say, no, you should hold back a little bit because, uh, you know, the risks of just burning a little too hot early in the race are so high in a marathon, you should do exactly what Kipchoge did and, and be gradually squeezing it down. Other people, uh, very smart people say, actually... In a marathon, the truth is, towards the end of a marathon, your your, your legs are going to be so beat up that you're going to be slowing down no matter what. So you should actually start physio- – it'll be physiologically optimum to start a little fast mm. uh, and then expect to slow down. So all of which is to say, to boil it down, is nobody knows whether uh, what the, the right way to run a fast marathon is, but this Stephan, seemed to work pretty well.
0: Stefan, the thing that I noticed is when he crossed the finish line, he – didn't collapse. He ran over to his coaches and mentor and gave him a hug. And he looked, uh, I'm, I'm sure this this might not be true, but he just looked to the, um, you know, uh, observer that he could have kept going. He looked, well, he, also, he looked
1: okay. He also was probably feeling a little bit of adrenaline, having just <laughs> broken the world record by more than a minute. Um, what I found really remarkable, Alex, was that he ran the last 10 miles basically alone, Nobody to push him, nobody behind him, even close. He had to command 10 miles of a marathon, dealing with his own thoughts and his own you know, physiological limits and his own beliefs of how fast he needed to keep running. Um, he lowered the record by
2: three seconds
1: per mile. That's insanity.
2: Yeah, and I think that what you pointed out about him running alone for so long is actually the biggest sort of thing that stands out about the race, uh, we've come to expect that records will be set under highly engineered conditions with pacemakers and everything working perfectly, sheltering the runners from the wind for as long as possible. Instead, as, as Josh said, two of the three pacemakers dropped out before the 15K mark, which is stunningly early. I, I guarantee that they lost a lot of money in their <laughs> contracts by, by dropping out so early. And the third one, so there was just one guy left who Kipchoge couldn't really shelter behind one guy. And he dropped out at 25k. So just past the halfway mark. So uh, from a purely physiological perspective, you'd say, man, there was some time left on the table maybe there's another 30 seconds if the pacemakers had actually done what their contract stipulated. That's all I'm saying is just like, let's,
0: let's get greedy. If this was the, uh, you know the day to break the record. Let's uh, let's let's break it as uh, much as it can be broken. Uh, you mention artificially engineered conditions. Alex um, Kipchoge ran uh, a little bit over two hours in the Nike-sponsored event to try to break the seemingly unbreakable two-hour marathon. He almost got there. This was not a sanctioned event. It's not official. But can you just remind folks like what that was about, and whether you think it had anything to do with his performance in Berlin this weekend.
2: Yeah, so this was, this was last May, May 2017. Uh, Nike held this big race that they spent years and millions of dollars preparing for, trying to optimize all the details to see if a human could run two hours under not record-eligible conditions. So, for instance, having six pacemakers for the, the whole way, uh, with fresh pacemakers substituting in, which meant that it wasn't eligible for a world record. And as you said, Kipchoge ran two hours zero minutes and 25 seconds.
0: My favorite part uh, was that they had people on bicycles handing him drinks, <laughs> which, uh, which which uh, I just sort of want, you know, just when
2: I'm walking down the street. That seems uh, nice. No, no, no detail was spared. And, and, um, and so the, the question after that was like, what does this mean? What does it mean in a real race? And, and my argument, which is the one that I expounded in the New York Times, uh, unfortunately, one year too early, was that, Kipchoge having run two hours zero minutes and 25 seconds under artificial conditions that would help sort of brush away some mental barriers and reset his frame of reference and it would help him demolish the world record Uh, so you know look we can't we can't prove things either way but I think that that. That experience, as as artificial and engineered as it was, I think it helped change his perspective and maybe indirectly led to the the big performance yesterday.
1: Well, and I think it also had to change the perspective of people in the running community. You know, sure, it was engineered, but look, a human actually did this. A human came within 25 seconds of running a marathon in two hours or less. Um, The conventional wisdom is that when Bannister broke the four-minute mark,
0: that that kind of that that was an artificial barrier, and it led other people to immediately feel like they could do it. Is that still believed to be true, Alex?
2: Yeah, it's it's that's become wildly inflated. If you you know read the self help literature, they'll you'll see these <laughs> stories about how three hundred people broke the four minute mile at one within a year of Bannister, and that's not true. Four people did, but four is still a lot. It it mm-hmm. had been millennia, and on, and suddenly. Or within two years, I think four year, four people broke it. So uh, I think there's some truth to that. You you see that it's possible. You set your goals accordingly, and and you you know you you set your your pace accordingly, and 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 more people do it. But it's not it's not like it suddenly becomes easy or anything like that. I was reading about Kipchoge,
1: and he's a big fan of self help books. It turns out, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is one of his favorite reads.
2: Yeah, the, the, this this struck me as as sort of. Hilarious when I first got to know him in, in covering the Breaking Two project that he 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 sort of spouts these what what sound like cliches uh, and and reads you know literature that or books that that seem sort of silly to me but uh, the more I got to know him the more I realized how sincere he was about it and and the more I started to believe that actually this is maybe a, a factor in his success that he he is systematically. Uh, building his confidence. And, and you know, he, w- he believed he was going to run sub two hours in the breaking two marathon. And I'm sure he believed he was going to run 201 today, and w- whereas probably very few other people did. So the 958 by Usain
0: Bolt, that strikes me as a great comparison here, um, because I think we can look back now, um, you know, years after Bolt set that record and say it looks as unbreakable today as it did um, back when he first ran that time. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on kind of the tension between, all right, um, Kipchoge showed that you can run under 202 in the marathon, and maybe people will now think that, you know, we, we realize that this thing is, that we thought is impossible is now possible, with just the physiological limitations and the fact that this seems like the best marathoner of all time. And even if, you know, somebody who's the second best marathoner of all time says, I believe I can do this. Maybe you just can't do it.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think one of the sort of side effects is we're going to see some awfully entertaining carnage in in marathons <laughs> over the next few years, as people are like, well, Elliot did it. So I'm going to go out in 61. And we're going to see, you know, smoke and flames and explosions as people uh, pay the price. But I think another, you know, a, 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 an undersung Or almost overlooked uh, thing that happened on Sunday was that the world record for the decathlon was also broken by a guy named Kevin Meyer from France. And Ashton Eaton, who held the previous world record and was the Olympic champion, I think is one of those guys that people would have put in the category of Kipchoge as someone who is putting the records out of sight. And so I was actually surprised, you know, I, I follow track pretty closely and this someone came up and, you know, what what Eaton had done, someone else broke. So I don't see anybody challenging Kipchoge right now, but uh, I would say in the next 10 years, I'd be surprised if someone isn't at least flirting with this record. Well, we, we talked about this the last time we had you on the
1: show, Alex, after the Breaking Two, um, to talk about the Breaking Two project. And there have been scientists who have studied what the outer limits of human performance in the marathon might be. And they do range from somewhere around an hour and 57 minutes to around two hours. So to say that this is unbreakable seems – seems illogical, especially after somebody just knocked a minute and 18 seconds off of the record at once. Typically, historically, when a record gets lower and lower, the amount that people break it by gets smaller and smaller because we don't think that humans can take a big chunk out of something that is already so low, that is already approaching the max for human performance. And yet we just saw that. And I was reading Let's Run's write-up about Kipchoge's race, and Whoever wrote it said that that they think the record is going to stand for a long time. That this really was a sort of harmonic convergence, best marathoner ever, optimal conditions, psychologically, you know, uh, impacted by his previous performance in this Breaking Two event. Um, I don't seem to think that that's right. I mean, he just did this. Why can't he go a little lower? Why is two two hours out
2: of the realm? Yeah, it's it's sort of yeah. As you said, it's hard to imagine that well we saw this performance it just happened and no one else could nothing could have gone any better you know there's no way we could get 2 seconds better so uh, I, I on the other hand if you look at the history of world records uh, in in events like the marathon they often tend to have like periods of rapid decline where a bunch of people are breaking the records and then it'll, it'll hit a plateau for 10 years 15 years and then someone will break it and it'll start another uh progression where people are breaking it. And since 1997, we've been in a stage where the marathon record keeps getting broken every few years. And every time it does, I say, well, that's going to end that, this period and we're going to start, we're, we're back in a plateau now. It's, it's, it's got to stay still for a while and it hasn't happened yet. But sooner or later, I think we'll hit a plateau, uh, not, because, not because we've hit ultimate physical limits, but just because that's the nature of things. You don't get great new athletes every two years. They, 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 they come along in, in clusters, it seems.
0: The reason that I think it's such an interesting um, question to think about is that there's strong arguments on both sides. I think one thing that you didn't mention that's a really strong reason why it wouldn't be broken is that there are only so many bites at this apple. Like Kipchoge's only run eleven marathons in his career. Like how many hundred meter races did Usain Bolt run to get that you know perfect? Day. I mean, obviously, he's peaking for the world championships in the Olympics. So it's not like he had a chance to break the world record every time he went out. But Kipchoge is running two marathons a year. And it seems like Berlin is really the course to break a world record on. At least that's the way it's trended the last few years. And he does that once a year. And he's 33. You know, he's, uh, you know, not maybe at his it, obviously he's at his f- physical prime uh, that I am going to send, I'm going to edit myself, but it, you know, he's not going to be doing uh, you know, he's, he's not going to be at his peak for like that much longer. And so, uh, you know, on the other side, you have the fact that the, the fact that this race is so long, if you have, have some little advantage, three seconds, a mile builds up to being, you know, 70, 78 seconds. So it seems like if the conditions are right and it's a really good day and everything's going well, then you do have the the possibility of really, you know, extending the record as opposed to over a really short distance, where if you're having a great day, then maybe you can beat it by a second.
2: Yeah. And I also think uh, that the fact that now someone has run 201 is going to create a sort of gravitational attraction towards two hours. Uh, And as you said, because the race is so long... Uh, and And because people try it so infrequently, most records are not set under perfect conditions. It's either maybe it's a little too hot or maybe like like happened this time, maybe the pacemakers screw up a little bit. And so you start to think, well, now that the you know history is beckoning, and everyone wants to be part of history, then there's going to be a lot more attempt to really orchestrate the details, to make sure that the pacemaking is perfect, the weather is perfect. Maybe someone will design. Of course, you know I've I've heard people talk about uh, the Yuma Proving Grounds. Letting you know, forget the streets of Berlin. Let's go someplace that's perfectly flat and that will be cool, uh, predictable, you know, with predictable weather, and just start to optimize out some of these conditions. That, like you said, a guy like Kipchoge gets two chances a year. Well, last in 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 London this year, it was way too hot, and in Berlin last year, it was raining. So let's not waste chances on on suboptimal conditions. So that might help shave some fat off the bone.
1: Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Outside Magazine. The column is called Sweat Science. He's also the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human
2: Performance. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. And I look forward to uh, next time there's a marathon record talking about it again.
0: In a piece published earlier this month on Slate, Aaron Gordon wrote the following. The Athletics' rapid recent launch into the stratosphere of buzzy publications is built on two big ideas. The first happens to be the least revolutionary in business. People should pay for a product. The second happens to be the least revolutionary in journalism. Sports fans will do almost anything for news about the teams they love, including satisfying requirement number one. Yet despite the obviousness of these ideas so far, they have worked. In under three years, The Athletic has leveraged the resiliency of local sports writing and a willingness to pay for it to become one of the biggest sports publications in the country. And still nobody quite knows what to make of it. That is just the first paragraph. There's even more where that came from. The story doesn't end there. We'll link to the whole piece on our show page. It's headlined, The Sports Page's New Clothes. Joining us now to discuss is Aaron Gordon, who was formerly a staff writer for Vice Sports. He now writes about transportation in New York City. You should check out his newsletter. It's called Signal Problems. Welcome to the show, Aaron.
3: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start by talking about The Athletic as a business proposition. It started in Chicago as this kind of local site focusing very specifically on um, teams and stories that fans in that market uh, care about. And it's expanded to other cities. Um, And recently, like after you started working on that story, Aaron, like there were stories about they just hired like five new NFL writers today or they just expanded into five new cities. It just keeps growing and growing. And they're also kind of national writers um, in addition to the local sites. And this is fueled by venture money. And so kind of the question, one of the questions you were looking at is, is, is it growing too big, too fast? Is this model sustainable? So I'm just curious for your thoughts after having looked into this for a while, what you think of their approach uh, to sports journalism, sports media, business-wise.
3: Yeah, it was funny. As I was re- reporting, this article it was around the same time that Movie Pass was falling apart. And so I was fascinated by kind of comparing the businesses. Turns out they're not very similar in that um in that The Athletic actually has a revenue strategy as opposed to just paying for people to do things they like to do. Um, But I think that kind of speaks to a natural skepticism we now have about especially kind of technology-focused startups, you know, the whole disrupt narrative. Uh, But I was surprised by what I learned about The Athletic in terms of its business model. I think its business model is actually pretty solid as far as these things go. Like, they have a revenue strategy. They have um some number of hundreds of thousands of subscribers although it's not clear exactly how many that is uh but because they've started from scratch because they've started without any of this baggage that legacy newspapers have and they could grow on their own terms and expand into markets on their as they determined that you know it made sense um because they got to set the tone of everything uh, they can actually control costs in a way that legacy newspapers haven't been able to do. So I think they actually have a decent business model as far as that's concerned.
1: But it's predicated on subscribers continuing to subscribe and subscribers agreeing to pay probably more in year two or year three or year four, and that's really an unknown. I mean, do you feel got to get those a... credit cards in the system, Fatsus? Yeah. The auto renew is key, key to their business model. Um, that's terrifically risky. I mean there's do we have examples, Aaron of, of media companies smaller ones because this still despite having a few hundred thousand subscribers um, or whatever the number might be, is pretty small relative to legacy media that charge customers like The Wall Street Journal and others. Do we have any indication that there that they will be able to um, withstand what I think is going to be an inevitable drop in in readership?
3: Well, I think that's the big question. And I, I would say that they would push back on the idea that their drop in readership is inevitable. Um, I, I think you're right to point out that whether um, subscribers keep their subscription after it increases in price by 20% after year one or even more depending on what discount they got, um, whether they cancel or not, that's a that's a big question. But the magazine industry has been doing this for decades. Sure. you know if you so I mean it's not like it's not like they're breaking any fresh again, it's like they're not breaking any fresh ground here with this model, and also it's something that Netflix and Spotify do regularly in raising prices um it's just kind of baked into I think the media world these days uh so I think there's reason for them to assume that 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 will work. I think the bigger question is what happens when they no longer have any markets to expand into, because that's where they get a lot of their subscriber bumps, right? They go into a new market, they hire a couple of writers who, if everything goes well, pretty much pay for themselves after a year in terms of, you know, recruiting new subscribers who follow them on Twitter or who followed their work at wherever they were before. Uh, The question becomes when they no longer have any place to expand into or they've, you know, plucked the low-hanging fruit, as it were. Um, what happens then? You know, then w- the, how do they how do they kind of expand at that point? Well, if they and still of course, need to?
1: there's nothing stopping them from saying we're going to implement some form of advertising. We're going to add some discreet, unobtrusive ads. It's not going to detract from your experience, but we need to do that because advertisers want to reach you guys, our readers, and we need the revenue.
3: Yeah, I, I talked to a few people who um you know I'm, I'm th- they wouldn't go on the record saying it, but they basically um alluded to the fact that they thought that was somewhere in the Athletic's future. Um, Whether or not that actually comes to pass is one thing or another, because the Athletic has leaned pretty heavily on the idea that um, they're ad-free. Obviously, there are ways to do ads that are not obstructive or particularly bothersome, you know, if they're just, like, static images that aren't ad trackers or whatever, but um, if it's basically, like, a sponsored image. But that being said, um, I think it's probably more likely they find revenue sources in – the sponsored world but not necessarily in ads that show up on articles you know whether it's like partnered events i think events are probably a lot are probably um, Mm -hmm. a a area they could go into i mean so basically there are options for them you know how to expand beyond just into new markets but um the you know uh, as with everything else you know they've kind of caught into something that was I don't want to say easy because the founders worked very hard to put it together but they were were working in a space that had a pretty obvious gap in terms of um, you know like quality sports writing behind a paywall so that you weren't getting inundated with ads like I mean that was just kind of a basic thing that People observe. And so. Ken-
1: Kenny Rosenthal's bow ties will have little discrete ads on them for the <laughs> athletic. Right. So that would be one good source.
0: <laughs> that is definitely some, a highly valuable space. So a lot of the folks that they brought in, Aaron, are from local newspapers um, that are kind of imploding on their own. There's the famous quote, Alex Mather, the co-founder of The Athletic, told the New York Times about – what was it like wanting to drink people's blood? Maybe I'm making it more <laughs> maybe I'm making it more more violent than it is. What was the actual it was, quote? It was I, I don't have it memorized, but it was something like bleed, newspapers
3: dry until the very end or something. He it wanted was it to... was very it it definitely <laughs> evoked a vampiric image. I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying that.
0: Right. Um but I think as you noted in your piece, um there is some element of vampirism there, but it's also like You know, newspapers were destroying themselves or the owners uh, of newspapers were were doing some uh, vampiric work themselves of kind of sucking these places dry and leaving them as worn out husks. And for that, you know, allowing the athletic to kind of pick over the remains there. This is getting very, uh, (laughs) very violent and and disgusting as an image. But um, Welcome to journalism in the 21st (laughs) century. I mean, that leads to the question of like what exactly – has been reconstituted here. Are they just kind of packaging what these old uh, publications, legacy media was doing under this new banner with like kind of cleaner design and no ads and people are just paying for what they were getting already?
3: I think that's a really interesting question and different people will have a different answer to it. Um, my, My impression after reporting this article is that it's a large element of just doing what's been done elsewhere before um, bringing it under like you say in a, a nicer package a more pleasant experience the app is a legitimately good app if you're a sports fan like it combines you know score alerts and with you know articles you'd be interested in uh, I can see why people like it and pay for it but at the same time it's hard to look at it and not think this is just really common sense what newspapers should have done if they weren't stuck in a legacy print you know, environment and tried to hold on to that for a bit too long.
1: Well, ESPN tried to do this with their local verticals um, that did not succeed. And, you know, what is innovative here is giving local readers uh, a bulk of local content, columns, stories, features that you would have gotten in your local paper. But at the same time, you have access to similar material from other cities. And your local paper didn't give you that. It gave you short stories or the occasional national type feature or something from the New York Times or Washington Post. But the internet does exist. But the internet does exist. It wasn't like you weren't able to read this stuff. No, (laughs) that is correct. But you couldn't read it delivered to your front door in a print format for those who still cared about that. Um, And I think there are people that do still care about that and want to see things in one section, in section D of the paper. Um, the, The, you know, what, Where I'm I'm sort of confused is that I'm not sure why this has to be revolutionary. I mean, you talk in the piece about how, look, it really is just the same content, and we just talked about that. But if it's the same content, and that's what people want, and they want it in a package that is more usable to them, it is more palatable to them, then they do deserve a lot of credit for finding a way to do that without trying to break the mold. They don't have to be The Ringer or Grantland or Deadspin and come up with a sort of new model about how to write more essayistically about sports. Um, let me let me I, don't, I, I just don't think there's anything wrong with that if they're finding a way to make a shitload of money by delivering the same kind of content that people have been accustomed to for centuries well, good for them
0: well let me feel that quickly before um, we hear from Aaron I think one reason why um, the question is raised about whether this is revolutionary is that the folks that write there um, speak about it in those terms not just as far as the business model, but in, as far as um, you know, the editorial content. Why like, I
1: joined The Athletic.
0: Well, yeah, and the people that Aaron talked to for his piece, they all talked about how, oh, you couldn't write these stories that I'm writing for The Athletic for the local sports page. And if you just look at the pieces, it just doesn't seem true. Um, and so there's just this kind of disconnect between what they claim as part of the value that they're offering and what the value actually is. I think you describe it. Accurately, I just think that maybe they don't describe it accurately. Like
3: right, I-, I think they're trying to have it both ways. Is the is the main problem? Is that they're trying to claim they're completely revolutionary, and that's why you should pay for their product, and that they're changing everything about the way sports are covered, and also they're hiring people almost exclusively who have been doing this for a very long time, um, covering teams that you've you've been reading their coverage for a while. And they come over and they immediately start to do very similar things. So I think the degree to which they're trying to play both sides of being both very revolutionary and very conservative um, is a a contradiction. And that was basically the main thing I wanted to highlight.
1: Or it's a marketing ploy, right? I mean, it's okay for them to say we're evangelists because, look, they were running out of options in legacy media. And reporters and columnists and national writers – and they've hired a lot of national writers and we haven't mentioned that – We're looking for the next available paycheck in a shifting, unpredictable, in many cases, collapsing marketplace. I mentioned my friend Ken Rosenthal, the national baseball writer who's on TV for Fox and and the baseball network and was writing for Fox Sports. And Fox Sports shut down all of its writing online. There was nothing for him to write anymore there. He had to go somewhere else. (laughs) Well, Aaron used to work
0: for Vice Sports, which doesn't exist anymore. So he can relate to that.
1: Yeah, But the the point being (laughs) that – you know if there's nowhere for you to do what you want to do for the amount of money that you were making, or someone's offering you more money to do it in what seems like maybe it could be a successful new version of the old, well, you're going to jump at it and and feel like you're taking some giant step into into the next phase of of your industry.
3: I think there was some anxiety, especially when the athletics started growing incredibly rapidly, that it was just another house of cards waiting to fall. Right, and nobody wants to see this publication start hiring all these people whose work they respect and who uh, whose you know work they read, just to be in the same situation two to three years down the line. That being said, they do pay very well, and I think most journalists right now would accept a very very well paying gig for two to three years uh, n- without knowing what comes after that just because if uh, the alternative is often being an at-will employee where you don't know what's going to happen next week so I think I think you're right I mean and, and this is one of the things where um I, I didn't want to come off as writing a hit piece against the athletic because I don't think it's it's warranted I think the athletic is a good publication for people looking for you know solid sports coverage uh it it doesn't cost very much a month it seems like a good You know, good purchase if that's your thing. Um, What I did want to do was uh, kind of split the difference between the way the uh, publication has been written about previously, which is either as a complete savior of the sports industry and possibly even journalism in general, and also a horrible thing that is like cannibalizing the entire sports industry. Because I don't think it's either of those things.
0: Thing a thing that I think we should mention is how hockey plays into all this. And that's where I think the athletic is really smart as a business and also serving readers because um, you know, NHL fans are extremely underserved by media. I mean, ESPN only being the um the the leading example of, of how hockey just isn't covered very extensively. And so I think some of the most successful markets, right, Aaron, are the ones where they've gone in aggressively courted hockey fans. And like during the NHL offseason, I'm looking at the most red list on the front page of the site. And the number one story is why Tampa's Jake Dotchin case could set a precedent for the entire NHL. I just clicked on it because I had no idea what that was about. And it's this guy could get cut because he's in Poor shape. It's like a con- conditioning clause in his contract. That was interesting. Like in the the other um, stories that I'm looking at on the f- front page now, it's like a Heisman straw poll. It's like there's nothing more cliche than that to like lead the site after a college football weekend. There's like Stuart Mandel's column that he had written for SI and Fox Sports. There's Richard Deitch's column that he had written for SI. Like it seems like hockey. It's an important point to make that like this is an area. In which, um by kind of aggregating all of that like niche of people who are like really obsessed with hockey and will pay because they just can't get the stuff any anywhere else, like that seems like a smart move by them,
3: absolutely. And uh, the NHL and some smaller market baseball teams are probably their strongest markets for exactly that reason. Uh, and that's how they started, you know, well, they started in Chicago, which, Um, I don't think many people would consider an undercovered market, but considering the size of the market, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that it's undercovered. And they told me while I was reporting the article that it is now a standalone profitable market um, with more than 30,000 subscribers. And if you just do some basic back of the envelope math of, of about $40 a year per subscriber, it's not hard to see how that's a good business model as long as you strike the right market. And... Again, as you say, uh, hockey is a great market for them because media just doesn't cover it for the most part. Uh, But as they expand into sports that are incredibly well covered, like their most recent expansion into the NFL had me really scratching my head because the NFL is perhaps the most saturated sports coverage relative to actual things that happen in and around the league. Uh, in the United in North America, I would argue. And I'm not sure what they're going to add by throwing their hat into the NFL ring. I'll be very interested to see how that plays out. And you know two to three years down the road after they've had a few you know renewal cycles, um, what markets they scale back on, what sports they scale back on? because I think that is going to happen to some degree and w- how people react to it is going to be very interesting and to what degree it happens, of course, is going to be very interesting.
1: Well, and also whether they continue to ramp up staffing by hiring uh, full-time employees versus going the route of other online sites and just paying you know, a few bucks for somebody to write. And it looks like that they already use a lot of freelancers whom they're paying by the piece. Um, their soccer coverage does not seem to be fully staffed Um, by, by full-time athletic employees. Correct. And
3: MLS is also another example of, I think, a sport where they could actually do pretty well in, because again, it's not very well covered by traditional sports media. Um, but they do use, yeah, they do use a lot of freelancers. Uh, and every, pretty much every, uh, beat writer, I'm pretty sure is on a fixed term contract of typically about two years, a little more, a little less, depending on the individual employee. So, you know, they'll reevaluate those contracts after they expire, and I'm sure they will figure that some of those writers don't pay for themselves. They have very advanced analytics to figure out, you know, what writer is leading to how many subscribers, and that's kind of the metric of success they use, is how many subscribers are you bringing in. And one thing that I think could be a potential... Uh, thing to watch is how much they consider cycling writers a part of their business model, because the more you cycle writers, the more you bring in a new audience of people who maybe followed that other beat writer, but not the beat writer you hire. I've already heard of, a after the article was published, actually, I heard from one or two writers whose contracts were not renewed, and they were told, um, you know, it was for one reason or another that sounded perfectly that viable, and then the site just went along and hired somebody else with a few more Twitter followers than them. So I think that's going to be very interesting to watch.
0: Aaron's piece, uh, which was published on Slate, is headlined, The Sports Pages New Clothes. You should also check out his newsletter on transit in New York. It's called Signal Problems. Aaron Gordon, thank you so much.
3: Thanks, guys.
1: No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Now it is time for After Balls. Um, we were talking before in our marathon segment about how it's been almost 50 years since someone has broken the men's marathon world record by more than a minute. The guy who did it was somebody I hadn't heard of before, uh, an Australian character.
1: Yeah, A guy named Derek Clayton. I hadn't heard of
0: him uh, either. One of the great athletes named Derek. I think we can say you know, forget about Jeter. Yeah, Jeter. Maybe the greatest two, all-time. Maybe the Derek. greatest
1: all-time. Derek Sanderson, squeezing in there three maybe. Rose MVP of the NBA, twelfth. There's <laughs> got to be some Derek's that were better than Derek Rose.
0: What's this guy's last name again? Clayton. Clayton. Derek Clayton. Great job breaking the record by more than a minute. He's also still alive, mm-hmm. which is a great accomplishment. So uh, good on you uh, for that, Derek. Uh, Stefan, what is your Derek Clayton?
1: Well, Friday nights in the late summer and fall are, of course, synonymous with high school football. There are more than 7,011-aside games every weekend. Extrapolating from reports in one state, Louisiana, a former high school football assistant in Tennessee named Kent Johnson estimates that about 500 of those games, about 7%, will require an ambulance ride for an injured player. Johnson is one of a small group of activists on Twitter who are dedicated to fighting the hypocrisy and mis- and disinformation of big football. Another is a woman with the address at Concerned Mom 9 whose crusade began after her 8-year-old son was concussed during a football practice. Like Johnson and others Concerned Mom who told me she wants to remain anonymous online, retweets news stories and studies about football brain injury, but her most valuable service takes place once a week. Every Friday night, she live tweets the carnage of youth football. It's not hard to do. Concerned Mom conducts searches for terms like injury, ambulance, hospital, down, motionless, airlifted, etc. And every weekend, those searches expose the reality of the game. The injuries, yes, but also the rituals around them. The kneeling, the prayers, the ball coaches with their quotes about toughness and survival and the game at all costs. It's pretty close to a religion of human sacrifice, Kent Johnson said To me. Concerned mom's retweet storms are numbing and therefore essential. I started copying and pasting the tweets from last Friday night, and then I scrolled down. There were more than a hundred of them from all over the country, and there is a numbing sameness and therefore sadness to this parade of reports some of them read like a poetry of death but rather than describe them let us together experience high school football in america on friday september 14th 2018 the charlotte portland game has been called early due to a severe neck injury to a charlotte player the charlotte player injured was taken to the hospital by ambulance there are no broken bones and he does have feeling in his body Exclamation point. Great news. There was about a 20 minute stoppage of play. Sandy, a player was down. He was loaded into an ambulance. No word on severity, but it appeared to be head related. Hope he's all right. Fourth player into the game at Hersey Huskies. And there is a player seriously injured. He is put on a backboard and taken off the field. Why I love sports today. After a Pilgrim Pats player was injured and needed to be stretchered off the field, Pilgrim and Chariho players formed an honor guard to see him off. Both teams shook hands and hugged after. Awesome sportsmanship. Hope the player is okay. Ambulance on the way with 26.6 seconds left. Cornerstone player injured. Victory leads 40 to 31. A Clarkdale player was just taken by ambulance to hospital. His name is Cody Connor. Please pray. Helicopter is on the field now. Out of respect for Avery Reed and his family, I won't be providing any more details until I receive them. Looks like we're going to be waiting for an ambulance here at Ballard. I think I hear the sirens coming up Brownsboro Road. Fannin Rebels lead 42-38 in a barn burner. Okay, stop for injury timeout. A rebel, O'Neill, is being transported by EMS. Prayers needed for a Franklin player taking to hospital. Please pray for Jacob Smith, a John Hancock football player. He sustained a bad shoulder injury in the Holy Ground game. He's being taken to Tanner Medical Center. Injury on the field, Plattsburgh Tigers player number 50 seems to be injury to the head. Another injury on the field, Plattsburgh Tigers number 11 appears to be an injury to the knee. It is silent here at CBA, One player down with what parents are telling me is a serious injury. Players and fans have tears in their eyes. This is not good. This stinks. South player being immobilized and taken off on stretcher prayers his way. Extended injury timeout for a Mounties down. Stretcher and backboard out. Maybe serious. The ambulance has come onto the field. I have not seen Thomas move yet. Thomas is on the stretcher and is about to be put into the ambulance. But great news, Giants sports fans. Thomas gave the crowd the thumbs up, showing that he can move his extremities. The Gratz player on the turf is moving his arms, but initial word is that an ambulance has been called. All right, finally, let's end with a series of tweets from one game in Florida. An ambulance is on the field to transport Tally. He has movement in his legs a lot. He appears to have some sort of shoulder separation, Barto trails 54-0 with 10.54 remaining. Tali gets a nice hand as he's carted into the ambulance. He's sitting up and looks to be okay. While Tali was being loaded in an ambulance, a second Barto player collapsed and is being treated on the field. They may call this football game. Teams are heading to opposite end zones. There will be a three-minute warm-up, and the game will apparently resume. The game has resumed.
0: So you just very effectively captured the dark side of football. Uh, and uh, for that, I thank you. But I also wag my finger at you because you're making it harder for me to give my more positive football after ball uh, after uh, you so uh, effectively uh, showed uh, how, how bad it can be. Um, but let me take you to uh, a motel room. On Sunday morning, circa like 9.30 a.m. So we're going from the ambulance on Friday night
1: (laughs) to the motel room on Sunday morning. The transition.
0: Uh, 9.30 a.m. Sunday. I exclaim in joy when LSU uh, kicks the field goal to beat Auburn. Um, The reason I was watching the game on Sunday at 9.30 a.m. was that uh, I was at a wedding on Saturday. And so I uh, recorded the game and was watching it on my uh, Comcast like uh, DVR app on my computer, technology it's uh, fantastic. Um, and so I managed to like time shift for a whole day by putting my plane my, um, my phone in airplane mode and just like avoiding the internet on like all devices. And so I want to make a culture Gabfest style endorsement of just putting your phone in airplane mode during a wedding, especially, um, you know, weddings are frequently, uh, during fall games. weekends when yeah. there are games that we would like to monitor for our personal rooting interest or just, uh, you know, because we just feel the need to know whether, uh, Ohio state is beating TCU just because it seems really important in that moment. But, um, If you put your uh, phone in airplane mode, then you can, uh, to to state the obvious, you can't do anything with your phone. Your phone becomes totally useless and you become more engaged in human interaction. And at the same time, while I'm just saying it like, oh, it makes you a better person, it actually uh, allows your later sports viewing to be more uh, fruitful and will bring you more joy in that aspect of your life as well. Uh, it's just feels like very, it, it feels like you're kind of getting away with something strangely to like, you know, I went to sleep, I woke up at like 7 a.m. on Sunday. and I just like watched the whole game. This thing that had like happened in the universe before and yet that I had somehow managed to corral the awesome power of the universe and manage it in such a way that it was like it was it it had never happened. You're stopping and time. I was I was I had stopped time with my uh airplane mode button. And so it just still We f- we've probably talked about this before, but just, it can be really hard to like shut out all of the, you know, ways in which you can get news, especially when people know that you're like a fan of this particular team. I like did remember I shut off the messages um, app on the computer that like syncs my text messages. And so I, you know, I had to turn on Wi Fi on the computer to watch the game. So like the text messages didn't pop up. And so like, once lsu won the game i was like even more impressed with myself that i had somehow managed to prevent the world that was like aggressively trying to tell me that lsu had won so like when i turned the phone back on just like all the texts start pouring in um it just made me feel even better about myself it was just like another victory so in conclusion football isn't just great on the field and not at all problematic it provides us joy off the field in so many different
1: ways. And you don't have to have an ambulance present for you to watch it. No, no, not in this
0: case, at least. Um, That is our show for today. Producer is Patrick Fort. If listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.